breaking earnings. Apple reports after the bell. Will the tech giant meet or beat expectations? Key numbers, shareholder reaction, instant analysis. John Fort, Morgan Brennan, closing bell overtime for Eastern CNBC. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week we're bringing you compelling interviews and market analysis and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. So let's get right into it. Today on the show, we cover a range of topics from the state of the industry and the impact of delisting certain Chinese companies from U.S. exchanges to what the new normal looks like for so-called low volatility. Turns out a lot of those low volatility stocks aren't so low volatility. Here's my conversation with Todd Rosenbluth from CFRA Research, Sal Bruno, the CIO of Index IQ, and Doug Jonas. He's the head of exchange traded products at the New York Stock Exchange. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Doug, I want to start with you. Um, I want, wonder if you could update us on the state of the ETF business. You do a quarterly report on the ETF business. Uh, this only goes through the first quarter uh, of this year through March. But uh, some impressive numbers. We still have 2,300 ETFs in the United States. I'm quoting from Doug's report, folks. Assets under management, $3.7 billion. We're close to $4 billion. Uh, Doug, give us a little update on, on, on where we're at. I, I know there's been a little bit fewer ETFs in the last few months. Some funds have closed. But overall, I, I still see uh, on that continued inflows and continue high interest in ETFs. Yeah, it's been, it's been a very active market, Bob, and, and um, that, I don't just mean volatility. With respect to new products launching, we've had 87 ETFs launch year to date. Uh, net cash flow for the year, close to $188 billion in ETFs. So even with the significant market swings, it's been a positive year. New asset managers entering the space, like uh, BNY Mellon is a new asset manager. We're expecting Allianz to enter in the next few weeks. So with over $4 trillion right now sitting in the U.S. ETF market, there's still a lot of greenfield opportunity for new managers to come in. And regardless of a volatile market, the, the reality is that ETFs have performed exceedingly well. In fact, they've brought in net cash flow every single month. So even in the midst of the, of the sell-off in March, we saw uh, equity ETFs bring in probably about close to $18 billion that month. So uh, ETF investors certainly uh, wholehearted and certainly still active regardless of market conditions. And this is why um, we continue to see new entrants into the market, like BNY Mellon and Allianz. Uh, you know, people a couple of years ago said, oh, everything's been invented. It's like physics 100 years ago. We've invented everything. What else can you do? And it turns out, even if you have a product that's essentially the same thing, Schwab proved this very definitively, I think, a few years ago. They have an active base of investors in their own camp. Why let somebody like a Vanguard or, or uh, an iShares capture that when you could essentially do the same thing? So I, I certainly think, Doug, it's, it's very smart. I wonder if you could update us on this whole Ant product, active, non-transparent ETFs. This was a hot thing in the beginning of the year. And even though a few firms have started doing it, um, creating ETFs that are actively managed in parallels to their mutual funds, I don't think it's caught on in any big way. Can you give us 20 or 30 seconds of where we're at on that? Because it was a hot topic a few months ago. Yeah, and I know we're pretty early in 2020, but I will say this could be the year of active. And what I mean by that, over half of the ETF launches year to date have been actively managed ETFs. Now, the reality is the majority of those products are still showing their holdings every day. As, as you mentioned, though, we have two products year to date that have launched in this semi-transparent structure. They do a, 
uh, a quarterly holdings release, and about half of the models are now approved. So active managers that are thinking about coming to the space but don't want to show their holdings every day, we're really engaged now with a lot of conversation about bringing those products to market. The, the reality is active is performing. We're seeing net cash flow into those products, you know, even just looking year over year. Uh, at actively managed ETFs, about a 36% increase in assets under management. So for those investors that are looking for an active structure, they do seem to want to, to, to access that in an ETF wrapper. And for the issuer of active management, the ETF wrapper offers a lot of benefits. They tend to be lower cost and they offer global distribution. So there, there's a lot of reasons on both sides of the fence why an active manager or investors want to be involved with an ETF wrapper. Okay, Todd and Sal, let me uh, Sal, let me bring you two in on this. Just a quick comment from you. I know, Todd, you're a very active observer of this whole space. We're approaching the half-year mark, and what's amazing to me is, despite all of the volatility, number one, ETF products have held up very well. Yes, we had a very specific issue around the oil ETF that had to do with the fact that you're owning futures products, uh, and this is a very separate part of the whole uh, e, uh, ETP space. Uh, I want to separate that a little out. I'm talking about the equity products out there, even the leverage and inverse ETFs. What struck me is they all held up remarkably well. Um, and I wonder if you could quickly comment on that and what it tells us. Uh, secondly, on the corporate bond space, tremendous stress in that area. We did have some differences in the net asset values there. Uh, and, and the prices of the ETFs. But even here, it seems like the ETFs are on the right side of things. Just give us a brief overview of where we're at here, Todd. Yeah, uh, Bob. So what we've seen is that investors actually flock to ETFs during the market volatility that, that we covered earlier, Doug talked about at the end of the first quarter. And we've actually seen money flowing back in to fixed income ETFs. They've actually been the more popular product, whereas we've seen outflows in the past month to the S&P 500 index-based products like SPY, IVV, and VU. It's rare to see those three ETFs together, see outflows when the market's been up. But it's been high, it's been high yield. It's been investment-grade products that held up exactly as they should have during the market volatility. And now with the Federal Reserve looking to get into this space or actually having ETFs to get stability, we've seen investors going into that. Real quickly, if I could, we're seeing active ETFs actually in the transparent way in the second quarter that Doug talked about. So J.P. Morgan entered uh, with active equity ETFs uh, about a week ago, and we've seen smaller firms like Truemark actively manage ESG products. So we are starting to see firms, including Sal's firm, that are offering actively managed ETFs. Sal, did you want to step in here? Yeah, I was going to just uh, jump in with a quick point. I think it's interesting that ETFs have taken in um, assets and we've seen flow and a lot of uh, trading volume. Um, it's easy to remember because it seems like time is it's just going amazingly quickly, but it's only been eight or nine months ago that we go back to October and we actually saw, you know, all the uh, TD Ameritrade, Schwab, uh, E-Trade and others drop trading commissions down to zero. And I think that was actually a really interesting development that we lose sight of. So for investors in this point in time in the market and seeing the volatility and trying to react nimbly, you removed all the transaction costs. Of course, you saw the bid ask spread um, and market impact potentially, but in terms of hard right. costs, those went away. So I think it enabled investors to move even more quickly throughout these more volatile times into and out of ETFs, and then they're trying to trade, you know, equities and, and trying to position themselves well. So yeah. I mean, that's kind of an interesting do, do uh, observation of point. Did you do you think that it in, 
the fact that we went to zero commissions on stock trading and many ETFs encouraged more active trading, Sal? I think it not necessarily encouraged it, but enabled it. Um, and I think investors were looking in this volatile period where you saw, you know, stocks fall from the, the February highs right around uh, President's Day to late March where they bottomed and came back. I think people who were looking to be nimble um, found that they did not have to worry about transaction costs as an impediment. So I wouldn't say it encouraged it, but it definitely yeah. enabled it. Yeah, I think what Doug, Sal, Doug, what do you think of this? The You know, the reality ahead, is individual investors, hedge funds, uh, all the way through institutions, insurance companies, when the markets were swinging so volatile right day over day, we were seeing them really engage with ETFs. And, you know, the fixed income was a, was a very good uh, spot to really highlight because we've had over $55 billion in net cash flow and fixed income ETFs year to date. But we saw ETFs trade the way the fixed income markets were trading. When there was a sell-off in fixed income, we saw sell-offs in ETFs. And those ETFs provided a bit of a buffer for the underlying securities. And I, I think that's one of the pieces that uh, the, the market gurus get into. But uh, individual investors, if you want to tap into, let's say, high-yield bonds or, or muni bonds, it can be very difficult in times of stress to trade the underlying bond. Yet individual investors on some of those platforms with zero commissions had the ability to go in and and trade, whether it be they wanted to own more exposure or reduce their exposure, they could do so through ETFs with zero commission at a time when uh, the underlying bonds were struggling to trade. Yeah, I think the, yeah. the whole thing that happened with the bonds, with the LQD trading uh, at, uh, you know, at times, at times uh, premium times a discount to net S values, uh, exonerated ETFs. We saw this with Chinese ETFs earlier in the year when where the China market was closed and the ETFs here in the United States traded perfectly well and very accurately reflected ultimately where the pricing was going. So um, I'm hopeful that this will uh, accelerate uh, electronic trading of bonds or whatever we can do to get quicker, more accurate bond prices because the ETF bonds, uh, excuse me, the ETF the, bond, the corporate bond ETFs certainly were able to figure uh, that out. I want to move on here because we can get into this discussion for a long time. Um, Todd, maybe you can comment on this. The, the U.S. Senate passed a bill this week that would result, could potentially result in the delisting of certain Chinese securities uh, from U.S. exchanges. It seems to me that's going to have a very big impact on uh, a lot of emerging market ETFs, of course. We talk about EEM, which is the main one. That's 30 percent China. But VWO, IWMG, um, big global uh, funds that are out there where China is heavily represented. Uh, Todd, any thoughts on this? Uh, here we have politics sort of intruding, politics and, uh, you know, global issues intruding on, on the entire uh, global structure of uh, ETFs and indexing, frankly. So what we find is that China is roughly 40% of most diversified emerging market ETFs. You mentioned IEMG. VWO, EEM, uh, State Street has a product, uh, which is SPEM. The weighting in China is roughly about the same. But most people tend to think of companies like Tencent or China Construction Bank or China Telecom, which are domiciled and traded in either China or in Hong Kong. But what is easily lost, I think, on many investors is that Alibaba and uh, JD.com, among others, trade on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. So these are those companies that could be impacted. If they're delisted, obviously, they would no longer trade here. They would no longer be in the index. So it's important to make sure investors look inside and know what their exposure to China is in their emerging market ETF. 
as well as where they're getting that exposure. They can, of course, also find some smaller ETFs like FRDM that actually has no Chinese exposure due to the, the freedom weighting that, that's used for that ETF. Yeah. Uh, Doug, any thoughts on this? Uh, obviously, there, there's all sorts of political overlays uh, around this. You know, my attitude is uh, if you are we all know about the problems with associated with China. We all know about the problems with the auditing of, of Chinese firms and how difficult it is. We all have a feeling, I think, uh, that um, uh, there are times when the Chinese firms are, are not forthcoming. Uh, adequately for uh, U.S. investors. We've seen numerous problems associated with this. And yet, if you know, it's one thing that you already know all this. It's like you're a qualified investor. You know that there are risks going in for China, but you want a globally diversified portfolio. I don't know. What's the right way to look at this, uh, 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 Doug? Any yeah. particular thoughts on I this? I think it's important we all take a step back and think about the overall global markets, right? I think we'd all agree America has the greatest capital markets, the most liquid. And so at any kind of regulation, we always want to be sure that we're balancing both investor protections alongside investor choice. And when we think about the Chinese companies from an ETF perspective, as mentioned, right, there, there are quite a few ETF, ETFs that cover the um, Chinese companies, but it doesn't always necessarily state where that, that company has to list. And so... Uh, the net impact on ETFs could be a bit muted. And what I mean by that is, let's say a, a company was currently listed in the United States, if it were to move to another market, it might just stay at the same weighting, same percentage and within that ETF. And the ETF is now just buying and selling the, e the, the Chinese company on another market. And so the net impact to ETFs, I think, could potentially be muted. But the net impact to the overall global capital markets, I, th I think that's real and, and something that we want to make sure we're weighing and balancing before we make any major changes. Yeah, on Go that ahead. point, I think it's interesting to look at this as a capital markets issue. I think it's actually more of a political issue because, as you mentioned, nothing is really new. We all know about the Chinese accounting issues and their, their lack of um, transparency sometimes and the audit issues, but it's coming up now during a time period where we're seeing increased uh, tensions uh, potentially between the U.S. and China. And to me, this is just kind of one of the bricks in the wall there. Um, and so we're looking at, we, obviously, we had trade um, weighing on us in 2019. We have the coronavirus and the political um, ramifications that are going on. And just today, we had the U.S. State Department basically uh, saying that, that Hong Kong um, is basically uh, no longer uh, autonomous from China. So I think it really, we have to look at this in the larger picture and what it means um, not just for ETFs, but I think it's a, a political um, bargaining chip, if you will, between the administration um, and how they approach China. Yeah, good point. I, I just want to move on uh, and hit a couple of other topics. Uh, and Todd, you were mentioning Know What You Own. You, you're on that theme all of the time. I just want to highlight what happened to the low volatility ETF. You know, these, these, these ETFs, they rebalance um, regularly, many of them quarterly. Low volatility was very popular in the last year and a half. It rebalanced just recently. Now, you think low volatility, you think like, oh, that's got to be utilities, right? Or REITs or something like that, or Procter & Gamble or consumer staples. And Well, it was. It turns out they rebalanced and they got rid of most of the utilities. Um, and th now they own Amazon and they own eBay. <laughs> and it sold the utility, the Con Ed. It sold Con Ed. And, and McDonald's used to be low volatility. Apparently, it's not anymore. And Todd, this, I found this very amusing because this is, illustrates your point here. So REITs and utilities, it turns out, they weren't so low volatility back in March and April. When the rebalancing came in, they, they threw out a bunch of them. 
and, and low volatility is now more associated with, with healthcare, essentially, and some of the consumer staples names. Um, Todd, I guess this makes sense. Um, I don't know well, why we it, think if Amazon is low volatility now, but. Well, Amazon held up better than the broader market, I guess, is, is the takeaway. And for the fact that people are using it more than they ever did beforehand, uh, given that we're staying at home. But you're right. So we, we this used to be SPLV used to be considered a real estate and a utility heavily weighted product. And it rotated away from those. Those stocks did not hold up during the most recent quarter as part of the rebalance. And the stocks that held up much better were primarily in consumer staples and healthcare. So still defensive sectors. We've just seen a rotation from two defensive sectors to another two defensive sectors. What also caught my eye is this ETF now actually has more exposure to technology stocks. It's now 9% of the ETF than real estate and utilities combined. Uh, SPLV has always been underweighted towards the growthier sectors like technology. Unlike USMV, which is iShares minimum volatility ETF, iShares uses more of a sector constraint approach. So 20% is normal to find within USMV to the technology sector, and under 10% is common to find within those defensive sectors. So these ETFs rebalance. It's important if you own them to make sure you look inside and use third-party research to be yeah. able to help you validate that. Yeah, I guess what, I mean, Todd, what's the conclusion here? Does, in a high volatility environment, does low volatility doesn't necessarily outperform. I mean, what is the conclusion we could have here? Presumably people own low volatility because they make an association. If the market gets crazy, these stocks will move less. And it turns out this assumption is wrong. What's, I'm trying to figure out what's the teaching lesson here from this. Well, I think the, I think the teaching lesson is that if you're buying a smart beta ETF, don't just buy it and hold it and forget about it, but make sure you understand. So it's now owning what are the most recently low volatility stocks. So it's actually doing what you'd want it to do. It's rotating away from what had been previously low vol, but then spiked yeah. a bit. But after the fact, yes. it's doing it. You almost want actively manage low volatility on a daily basis to figure this out. I mean, my point is people bought this thing or used to buy it because they didn't, they thought low volatility would, 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 outperform in a high volatility environment and that that's just that did not happen here okay so i have a it, it sort of makes you challenge your assumptions about what you own some of these things for they don't work the way you actually think they may necessarily work maybe because the assumptions were wrong like the idea that utilities would always be low volatility turns out not to be true you see so well, Bob, I, think I don't know I, I, truly, I, truly go ahead because we're looking at it through the prism of the equity market and the way that a lot of these uh, low vol in the equity markets are looking at historical volatility. And you're right, they're not necessarily predictive of future volatility. You know, we, we've worked with S&P uh, to create an index and an ETF that actually applies a similar concept to the high-yield corporate bond market, which in some ways has parallels to the uh, equity market, but it actually uses forward-looking information like, like, credit, um, like uh, option-adjusted spreads and duration. And what we find there is it actually does really well during periods of volatility, heightened volatility. Some of it is from security yeah. selection, but a big piece of it is actually coming from the sector selection. And we've done research looking back, you know, over 20 years, and we found that it's a consistent theme. So going back to the early 2000s, media and telecom companies were actually yeah. underweight as we had the TMT crisis. Yeah. Autos and financials, yeah. the great financial crisis. More recently, it's been underweight things like energy and financials and overweight healthcare care um, and consumer staples and communication services. 
So it is a little bit more forward-looking, and maybe there are clues that you can take out of the high-yield corporate bond market that maybe you can actually apply to equity. We can invest directly in the high-yield corporate bonds as a yeah. way to potentially dampen the volatility. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some in-depth analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs and put them in the context of today's markets. This is our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be discussing the growing dominance of ETFs and key mechanisms behind them. I'll be joined by my producer, Kirsten Chang. Bob, probably the top question we get from investors, ETFs versus mutual funds. What are the most crucial differences between them? Well, actually, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, both of them uh, hold portfolios of stocks or bonds or commodities. And basically, they've got to adhere to the same regulations about what they can own and how much uh, can be concentrated in, in the, the size of the holdings and things like that. But there are a couple of big differences. Um, first off, the most important thing about ETFs is that you can buy and sell during the trading day. You can't do that with mutual funds. So the information, essentially, the reason I like that is it gets updated with ETFs a lot faster than mutual funds. They price at the end of the day and don't trade during the day. And if you have something like a, a, a country like China where the stocks are closed, the ETFs that trade in the United States can keep trading even with the underlying stocks closed. You might say, how does that happen? But that's the magic of the crowds. The crowds try to figure out where it's going to go, and they've proven to be uncannily accurate. So ETFs can sort of reflect a, a new market reality, I think, faster than mutual funds can. So that's the first thing. You can buy and sell during the day. But secondly, it's important um, to know the ETFs are, are typically cheaper because they tend to track indexes. And those indexes tend to have lower costs. So in the long run, investors save money. ETFs are considered more tax efficient. Why is that? What are the key tax advantages there? Well. They are more tax efficient. And the reason that happens, and if, if you think about it, investors in, in ETFs and mutual funds, they're taxed each year based on the gains and the losses that are incurred with the portfolios. But remember, mutual funds, often the manager will trade the, the stocks in the fund. That creates taxable events. ETFs don't really have that. ETFs engage in less internal trading. So it's the, the market makers create and redeem the ETF shares, and it doesn't create any real taxable event for the ETF holder. Now, the mutual funds generate these trading that results in, uh, in taxable gains that's passed on to the ETF holder eventually. So you, look, you, you do get tax, for example, on capital gains for both ETFs and mutual funds. So if you go to sell your mutual fund or ETF, after owning it, you'll get taxed on a capital gains. But that happens only when you actually sell. You don't get these distributions um, for ETFs that you get for mutual funds that happen because the mutual fund manager is trading the stocks for you. That's the important thing. So the bottom line is you get low costs and you get ease of access and you, you get an emphasis on index tracking that makes things cheaper. And the overall setup is just more tax efficient. That's it for today. I'm Bob Pisani. Thank you for listening. And make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge CNBC. Breaking earnings. Apple reports after the bell. Will the tech giant meet or beat expectations? Key numbers, shareholder reaction, instant analysis. John Fort, Morgan Brennan. Closing bell overtime for Eastern CNBC.